bar. From a performance and an effort standpoint, no disappointment whatsoever. Great number seven knows like we did last year. This is Pool Time on Impact Sports Radio, your source for goals, high dives, and butterflies. And now your host, Max King. for tuning in to another edition of Pool Time. Max King here, your host. Hope that everyone had a fantastic Thanksgiving and or holiday break. We are back at it here this week in the first week of December. Hard to believe it's already December. Remember when Pool Time was just starting and it was a lot warmer when we just started. That would have been in August. So, good for us. Good for us. Lots of interviews to get to today. Busy show, which is a good thing. Better than the alternative. We're going to have Andy Driska join us in just a few moments. He is a doctoral student here at Michigan State University, and he does sports psychology work with the Michigan State swim team and comes from an extensive swimming background and coaching background. So going to talk to him in just a few moments. But let's break down the entire show first. After Andy, we're going to get to our weekly segment with Matt Giannotis, and he's going to talk about the last couple of weeks of the semester. Then we're going to get to Brian Williams. We're going to have him talk about his nice swims that he had last weekend, and he's going to look into winter break for us. And then Jill Stoneberg, a pool time first. She's going to be on the show. She has a great story to tell you. Now that the people who have made their cuts are on the team and the people who haven't aren't practicing currently, she's got a great story because she was not necessarily in the position last year that she is in this year. So we're going to talk to her at the very end of the show. Real quick, let's recap what the swim team has been up to over this last week or so. The tier invite at Northwestern was obviously last weekend, as some of you may know. Both the men's and women's team got second place at that meet, which is a good way to finish. Some notable swims we'll go over real quick are Brian Williams, He won the 100 and 200 butterfly. He also made NCAA B cuts in the 100 fly and the 200 free. He led off the 800 free relay in a NCAA B cut at 137.89. And also that 100 fly B cut was 47.37. Also, Sarah Love won the 50 fly. So the Michigan State swim team, men's and women's, really covered All of the fly events, they won the 50, 100, and 200, which is impressive. Sarah Love won the 50 fly at 25-29, which is an unorthodox event. You normally don't swim a 50 fly in, let's say, a dual meet or a tri meet, but it's an invite. They had a couple more events in there that they might not normally have in one of those smaller meets. Also, winning, taking home the top place in the 200 medley relay for the women's. The Michigan State women's team won that. And that was the relay of Brooke T. Lander, Shelby Lacey, Love, and Summer Strickler at 142.80. 
So nice swims overall. Also had some nice swims from freshmen. I'm not going to get into all of it. If you want to get the full recap on that, you can go online at impact89fm.org forward slash sports and check out the Michigan State swimming and diving page right there for the tier invitational recap at Northwestern. So now it's getting to a little bit hectic of a time with breaks going on and exams. And we're going to get into that later with the swim team. But right now we are joined in studio, and I love in-studio guests. We are joined right now in studio by Andy Driska. Andy Driska, like I said, does sports psychology work with the swim team. He's a doctoral student here in the kinesiology program. We'll talk about all that later, but first of all, Andy, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Let's get right into it. You're a current doctoral student here at Michigan State in kinesiology program. Your concentration is in sports psychology. Just a little bit of background on yourself. You know, you started out, you were a swimmer at Ithaca College. When you were at Ithaca, just tell us about what, what you concentrated at Ithaca, and then you went to Minnesota State. Just talk about that for a second. Yeah, sure. Um, I swam at Ithaca College a long time ago. I graduated in 2000. Um, didn't really have that much of an interest in sports psychology. Um, it's actually a biochemistry major, but uh, not a very good one. So um, I got out of school. Um, I coached high school swimming for about seven years until 2007, decided to go back. I uh, wanted to get into college swimming. Got a graduate assistant coach position at Minnesota State University. And um, at that point, I, um, I entered the master's program in sport and exercise psychology. And after a couple of years there, I decided I wanted to go on and do a Ph.D., yeah, I think I was a little bit tired of, of coaching, but um, just wanted to do something different. You know, I think wanted to get into the academic side of things. So that's what I'm training to do right now to eventually be a college professor. Obviously, you said you come from a swimming background. You were a co-captain for your varsity swimmer at Ithaca. Then you began coaching and you've coached skill levels all the way from five-year-olds to college athletes. So what made you want to get into coaching? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think for me, it was kind of a natural um, first step coming out of college. I found that um, I really enjoyed the time that I spent, especially as a captain um, with my college team. And I just enjoyed working with teammates, just trying to help people get better. Um, I just enjoyed the process of improvement. And I think, you know, what I found to be pretty rewarding about coaching was that it was something that kind of required my full energy and attention, but it was the kind of thing where I could see the effects of my work day to day. So um, it wasn't a full-time job for me at the time when I first started out, but it was kind of like you can see kids getting better every day, and that was pretty rewarding, I think, when I was young, just to to do something that I felt like actually made a difference. (laughs) And now you also you spoke about the education part of it uh, early on. You also have taught at the high school level, and you're currently teaching courses at Michigan State. What are the similarities between teaching and coaching that you found? When you do coaching well, there's a big teaching component to it. So if you come to the pool every day with the idea of a teacher, the idea that you need to work with each athlete as an independent student almost who's trying to get a little bit better at the sport every day, And you think of practice more as learning than training and sort of just going back and forth and and just trying to make yourself more fit. 
you're trying to learn a little bit every day. Um, I found that to be pretty useful in the pool. I also found when I was teaching that one of the things a little, it's a little bit frustrating as a teacher is you really don't have the same type of um, relationship with students that you do with, say, athletes. I think athletes today are more willing to be pushed by coaches, and I also think that parents are a little more willing to let coaches really push athletes. I found that teachers didn't have that um, license to push students like coaches could push athletes. And I think to me that was a little bit frustrating because I recall um, as a student myself, had it not been for several teachers who really pushed and made me do some things that I didn't want to do or disciplined me when I was, uh, uh, you know, kind of misbehaving because I was, I was kind of a, a bad kid in middle school. So, <laughs> but I, I'm really thankful for those teachers and I know my parents gave them the license to do that. Andy Dreska is my guest. Andy, how tough of it of a transition is it from an athlete to a coach? It's a tough transition because as an athlete, you're really focused on yourself and you may be focused on your teammates and you kind of bring like one motivational style. It's just kind of the intensity. Like if you're a captain, you're just trying to get everyone to bring some intensity to practice, to meets. When you're a coach, um, you really can't just bring that intensity because, you know, the reality in swimming is that a lot of swimmers are just not... You see football players, and they're all intense, and you see them in the tunnel and the, in the team room, and they're getting... And, you know, what swimmers, some swimmers are like that, but most of them aren't. <laughs> so um, learning to take that step from simply trying to energize practice to actually running a good practice in terms of... How do you motivate one athlete who's completely different than another athlete? And swimmers, I mean, again, I, th I think of football players as kind of being a little bit more similar in terms of, but of course they're all different. Um, but every athlete kind of has to respond differently. They respond differently to different types of motivational strategies. So as a coach, you really have to open your eyes to that. And I know it certainly took me... I'd say about two or three years to really learn that lesson that you have to differentiate your approaches. Um, you just have to be a lot more savvy as a coach. Now, which one is more nerve wracking, coach or athlete? I think coaching. Um, I think in competition it can be. I think, I mean, people have different understandings of what nerve wracking means, but I think of one of the, the hardest things, I call it emotional labor. Um, you, you'll have one swimmer come back at a meet and say they don't have a great swim or two swimmers swim in the same heat, for instance, and one swimmer swims lights out lifetime best. Another swimmer comes back. They don't perform well at all. So on one hand, at the same time, you have to be really excited and congratulatory for the swimmer who had lifetime best. And then you have to turn right around and adopt a completely different mindset, kind of treat the other one with kid gloves and, and think about, okay, how am I going to approach this and sort of debrief this situation so they can move on to their next race. And then you just have to do that for three hours a session. And so you go from, you know, it's kind of a roller coaster ride. So I found that to be a lot more stressful. Whereas when you swim, like, you get up for one race, you get ready for it, you know, it's really intense right before it, but it enables your body to perform. 
you swim your race, you warm down, and you're done. <laughs> you know, and then maybe an hour or two later, you have another race. And as far as coaches go, whether it be a prominent coach on one of the national teams, the Olympic teams, or just someone that you work with or maybe uh, swim under, who's a coach in your past that you've really admired and looked up to? There's been several, um, and I think I've tried to learn a little bit of something from every person that I've worked with. When I was coaching a high school program back in Pennsylvania, one of the guys who was an assistant for our program, and he had actually been my assistant coach when I was a senior in high school, but we worked together um, from 2000 to 2007, a guy named Bud Reiner. And Bud was not really from a competitive swimming background, but he was a Navy SEAL, and he had done three tours in Vietnam. And he had a very good sense of how to handle pressure situations. Obviously, having been a Navy SEAL, you you learn a few things about that. And I think I learned a lot from him in terms of, you know, how do you carry yourself as a coach around athletes at, say, a state championship meet? And I think that was... um, I don't think I would have ever learned how to do that had it not been for him. Um, certainly other guys I had coached with, um, a guy named Steve Doncheski, we coached um, summer league swimming for about seven years. Just learned a lot about structuring practices and working with athletes from him as well. So I think those two guys were kind of really important in my formative experience. Kind of kept my feet on the ground, taught me a lot about what I know today. And in your opinion, Andy, why is swimming unlike any other sport? Yeah, great question. It looks easy. It is very difficult. The amount of hours that you have to put into the sport, it's a part-time job. And I think the way I always try to put it to people who don't quite note swimming is like, if you've played 18 holes of golf and you've walked it, imagine swimming that. That's a practice in two hours. And I think that kind of puts things into perspective in terms of just how far you swim. Then, of course, you're doing it at a very high intensity. And to do that, in some cases, twice a day, to do that almost in, say, if you take the, the student-athletes here at Michigan State, you know, you're doing that almost year-round with not much time off, that's a huge dedication. And I, I don't think a lot of people can handle that level of monotony. I think Eddie Reese, the coach at Texas, he's kind of – quoted I've heard I guess I've heard him quoted <laughs> saying this I'm not sure if he actually came up with a quote but he'll say athletes don't choose swimming swimming chooses you and I think it takes a pretty unique person to do it um, but those who who've done it and enjoy it I think they really I mean they know what I'm talking about you know so it's I don't know I think it's what makes it unique it's just it's not it's not a very exciting sport unless you have been in it long enough to understand why it can be exciting or how how it can pay off. Talking to Andy Driska, doctoral student at Michigan State, your concentration is in sports psychology. So let's talk about that now in your association with the Michigan State Swimming Program. You work with them in that sports psychology aspect. Talk about the work you do with them. Yeah, sure thing. Um, This year I'm actually uh, officially a a volunteer assistant coach, and um, that enables me to spend a little bit more time with the team. Um, We uh, primarily, um, you know, people will hear the term sports psychology and they'll think immediately you hear the word psychology, you're thinking Sigmund Freud, and it's really not that at all. It's a lot of um, simply trying to make yourself more consistent, 
trying to bring your attention to some of the aspects of the sport that you might otherwise simply ignore in your training. Um, and if you ask people, you know, what the challenges of swimming are, oftentimes they'll bring up mental challenges. Um, I think one of the, the biggest challenges in the sport is simply when you're standing at the edge of the pool before a two-hour practice and you're looking at the practice and you're thinking, yeah, that's pretty difficult. Um, the challenge is simply making that decision to either go completely all out or just give 85% and do just enough not to get noticed by the coach. And I think that 85% is really, I think of that as being hard work. You know, going in, swimming as fast as you can, but that extra 15% is the little details that matter. So if you're going to do underwater dolphin kicks in your race, that means doing them in practice when you're tired and you don't feel like doing it. When, you know, you don't want to focus on, you know, dropping your elbow in freestyle and, and losing the power because you're just getting lazy and you're getting tired, you know, that's that 15%. And I think that's a challenge. I mean, you have to bring that constant attention to very routine, repetitive actions. So in general, I think the focus of my work has been trying to get swimmers to focus on those things more, to be aware of what they need to do in order to be great. And one of your research interests is mental toughness, which is the basis for your first thesis that you did at Minnesota State. In general, what does it mean for an athlete to be mentally tough? Yeah, that's a great question. And without going too far into the debates that are had about the term mental toughness, um, I think in general, I would categorize it as a mindset, um, a habitual way of thinking when it comes to uh, the sport of swimming. And I think it's simply, there's a few things that go into it. I think one is simply having a mindset that you're going to give your all every day at practice. I mean, as I said, the difference between 85% and 100%, um, it's not just effort, it's attention to detail. So that's part of it. I think having a certain level of trust in the coach and the program that you're doing, I think that's we're finding in current research that we're doing, that's a really big part. And that's something that evolves even in athletes' um, collegiate career. They're sort of learning how to work with a coach to transfer information back and forth. I think a big part of it is simply, I may have mentioned this a little bit before, but just simply having confidence in, one, the fact that your efforts are going to pay off at the end of the year. Um, swimming, one of the hardest things about it is that you generally tend to focus on one or two meets a year. You rest for a mid-season meet and you rest for your championship meet at the end of the year. And it's kind of like putting all your eggs in one basket. And to have you know, faith that three to six months of training are going to pay off, that takes a lot of confidence. It's talk about like delayed gratification. It can be a very difficult thing and oftentimes the pressure gets to be a little bit too much. And then there's just a lot of things that mentally tough swimmers do, but, you know, whether that's, you know, pre-performance and post-performance routines, the things that they tell themselves in terms of their self-talk, just to keep themselves consistent, keep themselves optimistic. Um, they've developed these habits over, you know, over a lifetime in the sport. And um, so a lot of it is you could kind of think of it as, you know, what are the habitual ways of thinking and the habitual actions of, of mentally tough swimmers? Now, changing subjects a little bit, most people, when they think of sports psychologists, they don't think he or she is a good tweeter. 
But you would say otherwise. How can a sports and performance psychologist implement Twitter in their benefit? Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good question because you know it gets to be a little tricky. I think um, within the field of sports psychology, there's a lot of different um, types of practitioners. So you may see someone like myself who's working with a team. They're almost sort of like a almost like a part-time coach you're coming in you're doing some things to like say let's let's reflect on our swims let's take a look like so for instance the other day we were doing something we call performance profiling Um, performance profiling is simply taking a look at eight or nine different aspects of um, we would call them performance keys and rating yourself from zero to ten on it and then kind of setting a goal so if you're at a four but you need to be at a seven you kind of set that as a goal And that's kind of a good way of just breaking down your performance. But I'm sort of doing that with the whole team. If I'm doing that individually with an athlete um, and we're working one-on-one, there's a lot of people who would say, well, you shouldn't really disclose what you're doing with that person. That should be protected by confidentiality. And without, again, without getting into some of the debates that are being had in the field of sports psychology, there's, there's a lot of people who would say, you don't say anything at all about who you work with. And there's a lot of people who come from more of a, say, of a sport background and who will say, look, if you're simply working with someone on performance enhancement, giving them a little shout out via Twitter is, yeah, that's okay. You know, or if you're working with the team and you want to, you know, send a congratulations to them and everyone knows you're working with them. I, I mean, it's kind of a gray area right now, but I think it can be beneficial. I, I probably don't use it as well as some other uh, folks in the field. A lot of people will use it to sort of develop a following. So if, if they're sort of a full-time practitioner, they might send, you know, daily motivational quotes or, you know, links to, to articles, but they kind of use it a little bit more promotionally. I'm so focused right now on my own studies that I just I've kind of fallen off in terms of using Twitter, but I, certainly a lot of people out there use it quite effectively. Speaking of your own studies, you're expected to finish your doctoral work in the spring. So talk about the work that you're doing to get that degree. My focus as a student has been um, I focused a little bit more on coaching and coach education, and specifically I've I've gotten into the realm of online education. Um, just because it's it's really taken off in the last you know probably in the last decade it's gotten a lot bigger. So one of my focuses is is using online methods to educate coaches. And in the United States, coaches are not uh, required to be educated. So if you go to Canada, for instance, to be a coach, you are required to go through a formal education program. Um, that's not the case in the United States. Most of coaches are, say, at the age group level, are generally volunteers or part-time coaches. So the requirement for education is, it varies by sport, but in most cases, most coaches won't have any education. And that, to me, is pretty concerning because if you look at a lot of the issues that have occurred, um, you know, kids are getting burned out on sports. They're spending way too much time playing one sport, they're specializing, you're seeing like 14, 15-year-old kids getting overuse injuries. And a lot of that simply starts with coaches who do not have accurate knowledge about proper sort of acceptable ways of athlete development. I would actually put myself, when I was a coach before I went back to school, I would put myself in that same lot. I had a pretty good idea of physiology. I understood it, but I didn't necessarily knew 
you know, ideal trajectories for athlete development. To get back to where I'm studying right now, my focus is um, evaluating uh, coach edu- education programs. So for a dissertation, um, that's what I'll be doing is taking a look at some, some online coach ed programs and, and looking at their effectiveness. And once you get that degree, Andy, where do you plan on going from there? What I'd like to do is land a faculty position. Um, which can be a little bit difficult sometimes. There's not as many as I would hope, but um, I like teaching. I like doing research, and I think I'm trying to land a position that's um, that almost doesn't exist. That would be a sort of perfect combination of teaching, research, and consulting, and other types of outreach work. Typically, it's either all research or it's all teaching, and um, there's not much room for outreach and, and that type of scholarship. But that's certainly what I'd like to do. Lastly, a couple quick hits here. Your hardest and or least favorite swim set you've done? Hmm, least favorite. Wow. I like them all. Well, I shouldn't say I like them all. I like some more than others. But I don't think, and of course, you're taking me way back here. So like 1998, <laughs> 99, like <laughs> that was a long time ago. So I think it wasn't so much certain sets, but I hated certain times of the year. So I hated getting in shape. Like, the first two weeks of practice, I just hated. Or sometimes, like, the first day of, like, swimming long course, I just hated because I felt like I was going nowhere because the pool is twice as long. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer that, though. What about favorite and least favorite strokes? I was primarily a freestyler. And um, I, I probably enjoyed the, the 500 the most. By the, by the time I finished college, I finally learned how to swim that race properly. So doing it well, I really enjoyed, yeah. And least favorite? Least favorite, I can never swim breaststroke, right? My knees just don't bend the right way. I don't know. <laughs> and fondest swimming memory? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I have several. I think um, as a swimmer, it was probably swimming with my college team. But we used to, for our captain's practices in Ithaca, we used to go gorge jumping. So there's a lot of waterfalls and gorges. And that was... I think it was probably some of the funnest like team bonding experiences that we had. Occasionally, like remember one time we took like water polo balls and we were playing water polo in like the middle of like a like a gorge. It was pretty cool. <laughs> and then I think as a coach, um, I think my last year of coaching high school swimming uh, just had an incredible state meet, and it was one of those meets where you know I think a team won maybe three first place relay events and it was just like it was the perfect meet like those meets never happen and just to have everything go the way you want it um it was it was pretty nice it was my last one so it was um it was kind of nice to finish on that note and lastly favorite olympian to watch swimming wise that Mm. is yeah it's a good question you know i think phelps would be the obvious answer i think um you know, it's it's easy to look at what he's done, but I think the constant evolution that he made from 2000 to 2012 was pretty impressive. And um, to stay in the sport at that level for that long, I think it's just unprecedented. And I think, you know, seven gold medals or eight gold medals in a games is not like what Spitz did in 1972. The, the level of competition has come way up. So I think, I mean... It's just hard to argue with, um, with that, but yeah, I'd, I'd have to go with that. He is a doctoral student at Michigan State, concentrating in sports psychology, works with the MSU swim team. In that regard, former college swimmer and coach, 
also teaches courses here at MSU as well. Busy man, Andy Driska. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Max. All right. That was Andy Driska. Awesome interview there. That was uh, very interesting. Very interesting in all aspects, not just swimming-wise either. Some really interesting stuff there, and I certainly do appreciate Andy coming on the show. So let's move ahead now. Let's go to our weekly segment at McCaffrey Pool to talk to Matt Giannotis, Brian Williams, and Jill Stoneberg. We'll start with Matt. He's going to take us through the last two weeks of the semester. This week's been pretty good. Uh, We'll get through it okay, although we do have a lot of people taking finals um, this week. A lot of projects do, especially for the engineers. Um, But uh, next week we'll modify it somewhat, let let kids uh, modify their training for exam week. And then we go to Florida, and Florida is a really cool time for our team. Um, You know, we eliminate a lot of distractions really get a good week of training in down there, and uh, then we'll go home for a break. Our, our, uh, one of our assistant coaches probably said it best to the team. He said, um, you know, we go five weeks in a row, and every single one of the weeks is different. So the kids are going to have to manage that. Um, you know, they'll go from having a regular week to an exam week where you're really heavy on academics to a week with no distractions in Florida to essentially a week off to then a week, like a half week, when we come back on the second. So, yeah, man, I, uh, it's going to be difficult on them to be able to manage it. Now, now, you mentioned it a little bit already. Take us through exam week next week. What do you modify? How do you modify that for the swimmers? Well, it really becomes optional. It, it really becomes optional type practices. If they can't make it, if there's something going on, if they have multiple tests in one day, then they just skip. Our, our end is stays about the same. We do modify times a bit because we don't necessarily have to go so much so early because there's no classes. Um, so we modify times a bit uh, so the kids aren't waking up early. But, again, if a, if a kid has a project that's due or something, they just basically take that practice off. And as far as the training trip goes, are you going to, uh, at least the preparatory stages, what, what, what's the prep that goes into the training trip? Well, there's a lot, and Kathleen does a lot of that. Logistically, you know, we're moving 50 people down, and we stay down there for a week. And, you know, it's not like we have an administrator that goes with us. I mean, we do basically all the logistical stuff, feeding the team, getting the team on a bus, taking care of, uh, training, um, tra- training spots, training times, and all the rest of it. That 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 that's really a logistical, not a nightmare, but it's hard logistically. And then um, physically prepped, our kids are ready to go. Uh, that that really is a nice trip for us. The best thing about that trip really is the fact that um, you know we just don't have a lot of distractions. We come off at exams. It's going to be nice weather. Most of the time, it's nice weather down there, so that's nice. Yeah, for sure. We're swimming outside. And lastly, what's what's the best? way you could sum it up as far as accomplishments during these last two weeks that are kind of hectic for you? Well, we want kids not to break their training so badly that, that you know, it, what we want is to try to keep some level of continuity. And not only continuity, but trying to vault forward. You know, we just don't want to maintain. We want to just continue to get better. And sometimes that's it. But academics are why they're here. And, uh, you know, you got to do well on your tests. At this point in the semester, our kids have done very, very well academically, and I'm really looking forward to a nice finish to the semester. And let's go to Brian Williams now. Let's recap those nice swims that he had over the weekend. And he's also going to tell us about what exam week's like and what winter break's going to bring for the swim team. For the most part, I was very pleased with how uh, I was able to finish. Uh, The times in general were very good for me. And uh, going into Big Tens, it should uh, give me a nice positioning. And uh, definitely looking forward to seeing what I can do at Big Tens. Going forward into the second semester, what's it do for you to have a good meet like that halfway through? Definitely gives you a lot of confidence. Kind of shows that you are capable of uh, hanging out with the uh, guys who are at the top of the Big Ten. And it just motivates you even more um, to go 
you know, push yourself harder and try and, you know, drop a little bit more time to be able to qualify for NCAA. So it's definitely a big motivation boost. Last two weeks of the semester, you got last week of classes this week, then you got finals next week. You've been through it a few times now. How stressful is this time of year for you? As a freshman, it was pretty stressful, but as, you know, time went on, it became less and less stressful. Basically, the coaches work really well with you um, as you, you know, see when you have exams and practices are kind of considered optional at this time. If you can make it, you know, come on in and do it. If you can, if you have an exam or if you have to study, they are more than willing to, you know, let you have the day off to focus on your studies because school does obviously come first. So as, as time went on, uh, it's definitely gotten less stressful, I'd have to say. Looking ahead to winter break now, it's not necessarily a break for you and the rest of the team so much, but what exactly are you looking forward to during the winter break practices? Definitely going down to Florida. That's a very nice little trip. It's nice to go down to, you know, warm weather, go down to the beach and the ocean, which is, you know, makes the hard training a little bit more enjoyable. But uh, that's something that I think everyone has on their minds and really looking forward to in the next coming week. And lastly, Jill Stoneberg with a fantastic story here about making the cut, essentially. Jill Stoneberg last year did not make the program's cuts. And if you've listened to the past shows, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, the swimming program has their own standards where swimmers have to make a certain time in some sort of event in order to move on to the second semester. Now, if they don't make that, their season is essentially over and they, and they start back up in the spring and they get back at it. But they won't swim that second semester, which is essentially Big Ten season. So Jill Stoneberg was one of those people that did not make the second semester cut. She was off the team in the sense that she wasn't practicing with the team the second semester. She's still on the team. She's still on scholarship. And, she, you know, she obviously is continuing to swimming now. But she didn't make that cut. But what she did in the offseason is pretty remarkable. She trained by herself the entire second semester, and she worked very hard. She worked so hard by herself, she's made the cut this year, which is a great, great story for Jill. And so we're going to get into more in-depth with her about it. So let's go to Jill Stoneberg on how it feels for her to have a solidified spot on the second semester Big Ten team. I mean, I was a little nervous, especially at the meet where I had to make my cut, um, that I wasn't going to make it just because of all I had been through last year. But I just kind of, you know, got my head up and was just ready to race, and I knew I could do it, so I just went in with that kind of attitude. You know, I was a little upset at first. Like I said, I came in here thinking I was going to be able to train with the team, um, and then... You know, it kind of happened, and at first I was, you know, upset, and I didn't know if I wanted to continue to swim. So, like, I kind of took a week to think about it, and then I ended up deciding that it was something I wasn't ready to get rid of in my life because I've been swimming for so long. So I decided that I would come in and give it a one more try. Did you talk to anyone specifically about how to get through this? Was there someone there that you kept talking through during that time? Um, I was always in touch with the coaches. They were very supportive of my decision to keep training. And um, anytime like, I was a little frustrated, I would just talk to them, and they would kind of help me through it. Um, and then also my family was very supportive of me. Um, they, most of my siblings swam as well in college, so like they kind of knew what I was going through. So they kind of gave me a little push every now and then when I just said I didn't want to go. but. 
just call them up and they would uh, tell me that I needed to. So. On, on a more happier note, this year, when you did make that cut, take me through what you were feeling then. When I made the cut, I was really excited. Um, like I said, before the race, uh, I was really nervous. Um, you can ask any of my teammates. I was uh, <laughs> struggling a little bit like as the meet started, kind of in a panic, and then they just kind of helped me get up and get excited and told me some jokes and made me laugh and kind of loosen up. And then I went in and got my cut, and um, it was just really exciting to you know look up at the scoreboard and see the time. And um, it was, you know, really exciting. And then the bad part was I woke up the next morning at 5 a.m. and go, why did I do this? So there's pros and cons, but overall I'm really excited that I was able to make that cut. I was talking to Matt, I believe it was last week, um, about cuts and when people don't make them, what do you say? And he said that he's just going to kind of use you as a template now and your story. How does that make you feel? Um, <laughs> I don't know, it kind of seems a little weird to me, but at the same time, I guess it's kind of an honor just to be able to do what I did. I mean, I've talked to a lot of, you know, ex-swimmers, and they told me that they wouldn't have been able to, you know, go a whole year on my own training. It's a great story coming from someone who, entering their college career, thought that they would contribute right away. They thought they'd contribute right away, and then they would be on that team in that solidified spot. And they didn't. And when I talked to Matt Giannotis last week and two weeks before that, he said, when it comes to these cuts, if you don't make it, look at Jill Stoneberg. Look at what she did. She trained by herself. And like I asked her at the end of that interview, how does it feel for you to be the template for those people now? Because there's going to be people like that. There has been before in the past and there will be in the future. There's right now. People didn't make the cuts. So you're that template. How does that feel? She said it was weird a little bit, which I thought was funny. But I think I think down the road, later in life, she'll appreciate that a lot more. But Matt Giannota said it a few weeks ago. It's not about how you act sometimes. It's about how you react. And Jill Stoneberg reacted in a big way. Can you imagine that? For the swimmers out there who are listening... Think about that. Think about just swimming in open swim. She said from six to eight. That's when open swim is at IM West. I've been there before. I probably saw Jill Stoneberg there. What she would do is they would just leave her the practices and said, do what you want. Okay? There was no one there to monitor, see if she was doing well. She had no coaching available. She just did it on her own. And for you swimmers out there, imagine having to do that. Whether it was in college or high school or whatever level. Imagine if you just had to do it yourself. You had no guidance except for this is what you should do because this is what the actual team is doing. It's hard. You have to be very self-motivated to do that. Even Andy Driska said at the beginning of the show, he said, it takes a certain kind of person to be a swimmer. It takes a certain individual to want to excel in this sport. It's that 85% compared to 100%. It all ties in with what Andy said and with what Jill has done and what Matt Giannotis has said. Jill didn't do that 85%. She was 100% because she started off doing that 85% and it got her cut from second semester. She put in 100%. Look where she is now. 
I want to thank Andy Driska for joining me in studio. And I want to thank Matt Giannotis, Brian Williams, and of course, Jill Stoneberg for being on the show as well. That'll wrap up episode eight of Pool Time here on Impact Sports Radio. My name is Max King, your host. Thanks for listening once again. Until next week, we'll see you.